I was very struck, particularly by the question about work and career and the furthering of one's status, earning more money, getting promotion, this being caught in to the values of our world, of our society, as it is right now. And it's made me really reflect on how marvelous it is that we have such an opportunity to be together, albeit virtually, to contemplate these teachings that the Buddha offered 2,500 years ago that present a different set of values, a much, much, much more profitable aim for us in our lives, perfect liberation from all suffering. What could be better than that? And yet, mostly in the world, it's not something that we hear about. It's not something that maybe most people believe is possible. You know, for most people, the um, drive is to find satisfaction in other directions. And most of humanity is uh, hell-bent on finding happiness in other ways. Getting more money, getting more material things, being more popular, more successful, more beautiful, having more things. Being in some way somebody that people will envy. <laughs> It's a very strange thing, wanting to have something that people can look at and think that in some way we might be better than them because we've got this thing, because we've been successful in this way. And when we have those kind of values, there's always the fear that even if we get all these things, sooner or later we're going to lose them or somebody's going to take them away from us. There's an interesting story from the time of the Buddha when he was one of his cousins who was similarly to the Buddha who was a very wealthy, powerful prince and he decided to leave his position in the palace, in the society that he was living in and become a monk. And so he gave up all his wealth, gave up his concern about his appearance and having lots of wives and that kind of thing, and shaved his head and put on the robes of a monk and lived on alms food, just what people would offer into his bowl. So in the morning he would go on his alms round and the rest of the day he would find some quiet place to go and meditate and one time one of his companions one of the other monks heard him it sounded as though he was kind of moaning he said, oh bliss oh and he was just kind of swaying around with this kind of sound that could have been moaning but could have been something else and they were a bit concerned. 
and uh, thought that maybe he was in some kind of difficulty. And when the Buddha questioned him about what he was going through, he was saying, no, no, I'm not in any difficulty at all. I'm just really enjoying the bliss of this lifestyle. It's so wonderful. You know, before when I lived in a palace, you know, I had to have lots of guards to guard all the treasure. I had all this treasure, all these possessions, all these people around me, these servants and people who were doing things for me and all this wealth. But I was constantly having to guard it, to protect it and uh, worry about it. And now that I've given all these things up, now that I'm just living very, very simply, this just feels so wonderful. I'm just so happy to not have to be constantly frightened of losing these things that I have or you know, people turning against me, people betraying me. Always this fear of losing one's position. And uh, I always think this is quite an interesting reflection, really, because my sense is that most people put a lot of energy into getting things, having things, creating some kind of an image for themselves, you know, being a sparkling personality, dazzlingly beautiful, <laughs> and spending an enormous amount of money in all of this. And then when their beauty begins to fade, when they're no longer so attractive, finding this being a source of real concern and spending even more money on trying to keep themselves fit and healthy and young looking <laughs> and then trying to make more money so they have enough money to buy all the things that they need to keep themselves looking young and beautiful and attractive. And then, of course, being in a relationship, having a family and all that that involves not that I'm at all against people having families, but how it can very easily lead into a real sense of entanglement if we don't really have our feet firmly on the ground. You know, and rather than being concerned about our image, being concerned about what the neighbours will think, keeping up with the Joneses, as it were, just really reflecting on what's needed. You know, so if you have a family, then of course... You know, you need certain things. You need to have some way of earning a living and having somewhere to live and having, you know, adequate nourishment for your family, for your children, clothing and all of this and education. And of course, these things cost money. But how many people are actually able to reflect on what is needed rather than what we're seduced into thinking that we have to have? to maintain some kind of an image, some kind of an appearance. There's a story of one of the most wealthy people in the world, and I can never remember who it is. Ajahn Amaro knows. <laughs> Sometimes I go and ask him about these things, and he knows. But the point is that when he was asked, you know, how much do you need? You know, how much wealth do you really need? I mean, this was somebody who was fabulously wealthy, and his response was, just a little bit more than I have. You know, this energy of always wanting more, 
more and better. So it's natural to want to be happy. But the trouble is that most people don't really understand where true happiness is to be found. And so they put a lot of energy into acquiring things that can never really satisfy. One of the most important teachings that the Buddha gave on many occasions was the teaching about the characteristics anicca, dukkha, anatta. In fact, it was the second sermon the Buddha gave called the Anattalakana Sutta. It's a sutta that in the very, very early days at Chithurst, when there were just four of us nuns there, one vasa, we were asked to learn this sutta, to recite it off by heart. The monks were learning the Dhammachaka Sutta, which is the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And they asked us to learn the Anattalakana Sutta. And at the end of the vasa, we were asked to recite it. I think they were quite impressed. And this is a sutta looking into the characteristics of all existence, all conditioned phenomena. These characteristics of impermanence, anicca, the fact that everything is changing, no matter what we get, what we acquire, it's going to change. Even these bodies are continuously changing. Every mind state that we experience is continuously changing. So even although we may have a very, very wonderful, peaceful meditation, I mean, maybe today some of you have had moments, times when you felt very peaceful, very at ease, very happy, but it can't endure, it changes. It's not worth trying to hold on to these states because they can never really satisfy us. So anicca, things change. The body changes, feelings change, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Our perceptions of things are constantly changing. Our mental formations, the uh, ideas, the plans, the um, emotional life is continuously changing. From one moment to the next, we could be feeling very easeful and happy and joyful, and then the next moment something happens and we feel down in the dumps. Or we can feel really miserable, and then suddenly something happens and we feel bright and positive. So conditions are changing, and the consciousness, the sense consciousness, is constantly changing. So this Anattalakana Sutta that we recited is about this. It's about these five, what we call five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. These aspects of life that we live in very close association with, this mind and this body are comprised of these five things. One of the ways that the Buddha analyzed our, our being with the invitation to examine, to study carefully, to understand, to look into the nature of it. 
So this sutta is a, a looking into the nature of this thing that we stick together, <laughs> kind of like a composite. This, this thing is a composite uh, that is given a name. It's called Sister Chandasiri by most people. My family call me something different, but for most people, I'm either Sister or Ajahn Chandasiri. And I can think of it as me. This is me. This body, this mind is me. But what the Buddha does in this sutta is to encourage us to really challenge that assumption. Is it really me? And if so, which bit of it is me? Is it the body? Is it the feelings, the perceptions, the mental formations, the consciousness? Which bit of it is me? And what right have we got to call it me? You know, can I, do I have perfect control over it? You know, can I say to my body, please don't get old? Unfortunately not. <laughs> you know, the body gets old. My body's very old now. Well, pretty old. It's quite old now. It was young one time. It was, it was born. And then it uh, grew up. Teenager, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on. And now it's getting old. And I, I can't stop it. You know, I can, I can try to stay as healthy as possible and take my vitamins, my cider apple vinegar to stop me getting too creaky, things like that. I can try and have as, um, you know, try to avoid things that are going to be harmful not too much sugar and that kind of thing. <laughs> so I can, I can, there are things I can do to, to keep it reasonably healthy, make it last as long and as pain-free as possible. You know, in this society, we're very fortunate that we do have enormous choice in terms of, of diet and so on, you know, compared with people living in, in much poorer countries where there is very little choice very little resources, but um, most of us have quite a range of choice. So we can we can eat and live in ways that are you know can can maintain a sense of uh, physical well being. Um, you know, a step up from bare survival. So we're very fortunate, but we can't we can't stop the aging process. We can't stop. Disease. I mean, this is one of the things that this pandemic has really um, highlighted for us. You know, how powerless we are in the face of um, this sickness that so many people have suffered enormously from, so many people have died from. So much energy has gone into just trying to, you know, stop things from getting too difficult, too, too terrible. And now, fortunately, you know, many people are being able to have some kind of protection. But it's, um, it takes an enormous amount of effort to, to work with these things. And, you know, for many people, many people have perished as a result. So the body is anicca. It's not something we can rely on. The mind is even more anicca. <laughs> Things change in the mind very, very rapidly. So, you know, we can say, well, things are changing, things are impermanent. 
and uh, we can think that. But our practice really has to be a constant um, investigation of this because we, we very easily forget. We get caught up in our hab- habitual responses to things. Um, you know, kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. You know, there's something we don't like, so we try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. You know, without even thinking, is this going to be the uh, most helpful response to this situation. You know, we just enter into some kind of a struggle. We dive into a struggle. We, we contend with our experience. When it's going wonderfully, when it's just the way we want it to be, when things are just fantastic, we try to hold on to them. You know, we want to keep them. We want to keep it that way. And that's a struggle. And when it's really horrible and difficult, we immediately want to get rid of it. And that's another kind of struggle, another kind of holding on, another kind of attachment. So the world of ever-changing conditions uh, can never provide lasting peace and satisfaction. Never, ever. (laughs) So it's not all bad news because the Buddha's teaching guides us uh, to another um, level of being, another level of understanding. The possibility of liberating ourselves from this constant stress of trying to keep things the way we want them, trying to get enough, uh, amass enough wealth so that we can be live easily and comfortably for the you know forever, <laughs> and then of course we have to insure it all because you never know what will happen. <laughs> so constant stress, constant struggle, but there is an alternative. There is a way out of this struggle of this dukkha. The answer I always used to give to every question that I was asked was just one word. And uh, it's become a very popular word, very trendy, this word mindfulness. There's a, a saying that uh, in, the, in the Dhammapada, that mindfulness is the path to the deathless. So I think probably all of you know what mindfulness is. In fact, lots and lots of people know what mindfulness is. And I'm really, really delighted about that. Uh, When I first came across mindfulness and thought how wonderful it was, I never thought it would catch on to the degree that it has. Um, So mindfulness, present moment awareness. Uh, We know what death is. Death is when the end of life has come. The, The life energy goes out of the body. The body dies and it enters into another state. In fact, with the decomposition of the body, all kinds of life starts happening. And then it gets quite unpleasant, in fact. Um, But the uh, life energy of this being here, this this kind of conscious entity um, has, has, has changed. So what do we mean by deathless 
And if we're talking about things arising and ceasing, things having been born, they die. Uh, what, 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 what is this deathlessness? What is this liberation? What is Nibbana? You know, what, what, is, what, what do we really mean by mindfulness? What is the possibility that it opens up for us? In the, um, earlier on, I spoke about, about suffering, the different kinds of suffering, and the ending of suffering. The ending of suffering when we let go of the desire for things to be otherwise. When we're just perfectly present with this moment, it's kind of like a dance because this moment is perpetually moving, it's perpetually, perpetually changing. And to be able to remain perfectly present with each moment, each instant, this is, this is liberation. Letting go of the past, letting go of the future, but just being perfectly present. Like the Buddha's disciples when they were going on arms round, and people would ask, how come your disciples are so serene? How come they're so at ease? Uh, there's a kind of there was a quality about them that was inst instantly recognizable. And the Buddha said, "Well, they lament not over the past. They don't. They don't have a lot of regrets because they're living carefully, responsibly. So they're not uh, hankering after the past. Neither are they concerned or worried about the future." They're simply present with each moment. So this is our practice, is learning how to uh, relinquish our attachment to the past, relinquish our concerns about the future. This isn't saying that we um, you know, totally abandon our families and our jobs and our responsibilities, but it's learning how to, to carry these responsibilities lightly, uh, learning how to really trust in the unfolding of things, in the Dhamma, as we experience it. This comes about when we have experienced suffering. I mean, we may all think, well, yes, of course I've experienced suffering, but have we really... Um, I suppose I'd say examined it. Have we really been willing to be with it in a very present, very conscious way so that we learn about it? We really experience that feeling of struggle. When we've really experienced that, then there's a the natural incentive to let go. To let go of the desire for things to be otherwise. To drop into that sense of easeful presence where maybe nothing has changed externally, but we've let go of the desire for things to be different. We've, we've just settled into the moment as it is. Like someone was talking about the sound of traffic and how disturbing it was. And it is disturbing when we don't want it, when we would rather it wasn't there. You know, we can get into a real uh, contention with it, a real battle with it. 
But we can also, we also have the capacity to just let it be. There's a story about Ajahn Chah when he came to England and he was visiting the Hampstead Vihara on Haverstock Hill. And this particular little dwelling where there were, I don't know how many monks living there, and there was a pub across the road. And on summer evenings, you know, all the windows would be open because it'd be very warm and there'd be um, music coming from the pub. And one evening I just happened to be visiting uh, the Vihara when and Ajahn Chah was there and he was saying, he was saying, you know, is, is the music coming to disturb you or is it your mind is going out to, to engage with the music, to, to do battle with the music? Can you let go? In some ways it's easier said than done because we're, we're actually working with a lot of habits. Our habit is to hold on to things to reach out and grasp things, to hold on to things. Even unpleasant things, even our most difficult, painful memories, the habit is to hold on to them. We don't want to let them go. So why is that? Partly it's habit. Partly there's a kind of fear that if we let them go, there'll be nothing left. You know, where will I be? Because our self we, there's such a, a strong investment in, in this self uh, that we've created, this composite that we've created. And if we let go of our difficult memories, then who am I if I don't have this huge problem or this painful memory? How is it to live without that? So at first, as we practice, what may happen is that you might have a moment of letting go. It may not be something that uh, can be sustained, but maybe just a moment, a little taste. You know, when you're really struggling with suffering, something, you know, some unpleasant condition of the body or mind. You know, maybe with an itch, you can experiment with itches. Very handy thing in, in, in meditation because, you know, if we're sitting still, usually just a, a matter of time before we develop an itch on our nose or on our arm or our shoulder or somewhere and have to scratch. But can you experiment with not scratching? Uh, just being with that uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling. Can you experiment with that? What happens then? When you really let go and allow it to be there for as long as it needs to stay. Take an interest in it even. You can see how it changes. Same with pain. You know, when you go to the dentist, can you, you know, if they say, would you like some anesthetic? Can you say no? <laughs> and see what happens when they have to do some drilling or something. Can you investigate, see what this not out of a sense of masochism, it's not that we like pain, but when you really say with something like in the dentist, it's actually very a very brief moment, and then it's gone. And when we really let go of, the, when we really are with it in a very immediate way, um, there's a sense of peacefulness. When we let go of the struggle, when we stop minding, 
talking about standing meditation earlier on and how so often when we're standing, we're waiting in a queue, the supermarket, waiting for the bus, whatever it is. And I don't know about you, but what can happen for me is a, a kind of natural kind of impatience, a feeling, you know, I want this thing to happen faster. I don't want to have to wait. And it can be interesting just to observe that, how that affects you, just that feeling of not wanting to have to wait. You know, it has an effect in the mind and almost physically there's a, there's a feeling of you know, wanting to move forward. But you can experiment. You can experiment by seeing that as a time for standing meditation. And just standing. Letting go of that wanting for things to be different. How does that feel? And the cue may move just as slowly, but it can become you know, even a pleasant experience. Just standing. Sometimes with walking meditation, we can... <laughs> It can be quite amusing, like on a retreat, like this. You know, we could be on our walking path, waiting for the bell, and just walking backwards and forwards, waiting for the bell, waiting to hear the bell, waiting for the time to be up. Then the time is up, and then we come and we sit, and then we wait for the bell for the end of the sitting. At the end of the sitting, okay, now I'm going to go and do more walking. Just constantly waiting. <laughs> that feeling of impatience, always wanting to move on to the next thing. But we can let go of that. We can allow things to be. That's very peaceful. So we might think that this means that we never really do anything. We just, <laughs> just make peace with things as they are. And this is a common question among Buddhist practitioners, you know, because it can seem like a very very passive um, approach to life and you know, just making peace with everything. But when you look at the life of the Buddha, you see that he, he, you know, he was certainly very peaceful, but he was also very active. And he used his energy. His energy was constantly dedicated to supporting others. He was constantly teaching for people's welfare and happiness pointing out the Dhamma, pointing to ways that they could live more happily and peacefully, avoid doing things that were harmful. And over and over again, he would explain things, you know, to the monastic community, he was always explaining things to the monks and nuns who were getting things wrong. And then responding to different, you know, tragic situations that he would come across, really difficult situations. And Constantly there, constantly ready to empathize, to understand, and to offer some encouragement. People and countless beings were, were able to receive his teachings, his guidance, and to find this deathlessness for themselves. So in this practice, it's not just about sitting quietly, letting go of desire, but a willingness to enter into life. So one of the things I found most inspiring, it's a verse I quote very often from the Mahamangala Sutta, the Discourse on the Greatest Blessings, and the final verse is, though living in the world, 
yet the heart does not tremble. Free from sorrow, confusion, need. So when we really understand the nature of reality, we've really learned how to live in accordance with truth rather than always contending, always trying to hold on to things that we can never keep, always trying to get rid of things that will change anyway. When we can, in that way, we can move through life um, without causing harm to ourselves or to others. Cultivating virtues, cultivating goodness, generosity, kindness, cultivating clear seeing through our meditation practice as we investigate reality, investigate the truth for ourselves, find out for ourselves. So it's not just a good idea, not just something we've read somewhere or heard about, but something we've actually found out for ourselves. And we've applied the teachings to our own situation and discovered that, yeah, this is true. This is really true. If I do this, I'm going to, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to struggle. If I do this, I'm going to experience a moment of peace, of happiness, a sense of joyfulness. There's a lot we can learn from these minds and bodies through the ways that we react to different things, the ways that we cause ourselves suffering and difficulty, through our fears, our longings, our likes, our dislikes, our irritations. These are all part and parcel of our practice. So it, it's all included in our practice. We're learning about life. And this retreat is an opportunity to, to learn through direct experience, direct observation. So opening just a little bit to some of the things that we may have tried to shut out of consciousness, the things that perhaps we think we shouldn't have, that we don't like about ourselves. Just learning to say, okay, this is how it is. And I don't need to identify with it. This is just a passing condition. This irritation, this grumpiness, this longing for something. This is just a passing visitor. And there's that which can observe, that which knows, that sees things clearly as they are. Going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. So these are some thoughts for you this, this evening that I hope that some of it has been useful, has made sense, and things that you can ponder, ponder through the night, ponder as you wake up in the morning, and take them with you into your life. And I hope that for each one of you, you'll have a little taste of the possibility, of the potential for liberating the heart from all suffering. This practice that we can all share in together. So I'll end my reflection with my very best wishes.